Negan, I don't like killing people anymore. I like killing people. Oh, well. I say it's about killing the right people. You kill the right people at the right time, everything falls into place. What you doing is right. Somebody stop this, please. Killing me in the dead of night is your shame. Stop this, please. For the love of God, stop it. Good evening, and welcome to this very special edition of the Crimson Head Elder Podcast Halloween Season. Tonight, we have, from the main cast of television's most popular show, AMC's The Walking Dead, and with an illustrious CV that spans globally iconic television such as MASH, Miami Vice, 24, and such Hollywood blockbusters and critically acclaimed film as Gattaca, Terminator 2, Apollo 13, Heat, and Air Force One. Tonight's very special guest, and I hope he's recovered from the hangman, or in this case, Maggie's noose, is Xander Berkeley. Now, all is well. That's a relief. I'm pleased to hear that, Xander. Now, I wanted to explore any parallel there may be with video game voice actors who, prior to the recording sessions, will be shown concept art for their character, and yourself taking on a role of an already established character in Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead comics. How much of a reference, if any, was Tony Moore's drawings of Gregory when you were preparing for the role? It is a really fun part of it. It was one of the most enjoyable aspects of my preparation for the show. I hadn't watched the show and I hadn't read the comic. And so there was a a couple of weeks when they offered me the part. I, I had to do a whole lot of cramming like you would cram for an exam. And I was flown out to Sonoya and there was, I think there was almost two weeks before I was to start principal photography. And in that time, I, I requested the entire DVD set to watch there in the in this compound in Sonoya where they, it's, it's just the wildest place because it, I guess they have a lot of conferences out there. It's sort of in the woods, very isolated. There are a lot of golf carts, more than there are cars in the town, a <laughs> cult village or something. <laughs> perfect setting for this uh, cramming. So I, I had the DVDs, which I would watch every night and then just keep watching. And I would oh, wait. Wow. So you went back to the very first season? From the very first season, I went all the way through because I wanted to see where I fit into the scheme of things. I wanted to see where I fit into the arc as much as wanting to play my part. I, I've always been very disciplined about wanting to read the whole script because you're not just playing your part. You're trying to bring the color that's needed in contrast to all the other colors. Yes that are in the painting because I'm a painter and I sort of see things visually sometimes as much uh, or more even than from an internal psychological point of view, because I think actors can get very lost in the narcissism of their own viewpoint and not remember often enough how important it is to fit your piece of the puzzle and not to play every color in the rainbow, but the colors that are required in relationship to the others and how they would match or contrast accordingly. You know, at a certain point, there was this great arc with the governor and what, what he had brought to it. And then there was, you know, David Morrissey. And and, and then there that, that character had come and gone. The show had gone another, you know, it, it had gone in a certain way. And I was asking Scott Gimple when he was listing all the characteristics of Gregory. And I said, wow, this guy sounds like a pretty big asshole. <laughs> wow. He said, well, I said, what what accounts for him being such a big asshole? (laughs) He said, well, uh, you know, life taught him a lot of bad lessons. Right. I go, okay, all right, I got you. One of the things coming up for me is why will we want to watch him? 
what's going to make us want to watch this incredibly unctuous asshole over and over each week. And I know he'll provide a foil to make us root for our main characters. I get that's going to be my, I'm going to be pulling the gears story-wise that'll make them move in, in the direction, to make the story move in the direction you want it to move in and to make us like and, and root for main characters more. I get, I get that. That's going to be my job. But along the way, rather than just giving people a bad feeling, what does the show need that it doesn't have right now that maybe on a positive note I could bring it? He thought about that and he said, well, that sometimes it could get a little slow and that sometimes it was getting to be a little bit of a Southern drama at times. And so that was also in determining where, where my character would be from. Would he, you know, it takes place in Georgia. Would he be from the South? And we didn't want him to specifically be from the South. And we wanted him to be different. We wanted it to be like he's either from the North or the West and he's sort of bringing in a northwesterly breeze. So it's almost like we're cracking the window every time we go to Hilltop and letting cool new breeze come in. Mm. That would be one of the things I could I could do for the show is to mix it up, move the air around in a new way. I'm interested that you are asking and sort of focusing not necessarily just on the negative points of, of, of Gregory, but in, as you say, sort of some of the benefits that he can bring because he's the first leader that the group come across that isn't, well, I hasten to, to say a megalomaniac. You mentioned David Morris's character, and these are very black and white antagonist protagonist but with Gregory I think as Jesus says before we meet Gregory to Rick your whole world is going to become bigger is going to open up and Gregory is that interesting character that first leader that we meet and that Rick meets as the group we meet through him that isn't immediately set out as an antagonist yeah right and you just see right away that he's unctuous more than antagonist i love your opening line you even interrupt rick and you just cut him straight straight out pronouncing yourself as the boss yeah i'm the boss yeah jesus you're back uh and you've got company <laughs> i think that was my opening line yes bust the doors double doors wide open and then go jesus you're back and you brought company and i sort of eyed danae <laughs> she's Rick's girlfriend and and right off the bat I I thought it would be just like just and they they didn't linger on that but I gave them that choice because he's supposed to be this womanizer you know that it would just be funny and if he immediately checks out well you brought some fresh fresh blood into the compound and that's the first thing he notices some very attractive women here in your <laughs> and then the second thing he notices you're filthy people are yes and as Rick's about to say something you just sort of put your arm around him and just cut him off and uh certainly yeah. exerting your authority and i i liked it because i just i think rick did deserve to be put down a peg or two before that so i, I enjoyed that experience oh, and it's funny and that's the other thing i asked god i said what else can be? he said well humor i i think i said could i bring some humor i'd been watching the whole show at this point when this stage of the conversation i'd had with him I, i'd agreed to do the show and when i had watched the whole series up to that point it felt like it could use to, to prevent things from getting turgid. It would be fun for the show, for the viewers, that it would enable them to still loathe me, but to have him be a guy who thinks he's funny. Yes, and yes. One of, one of the bad lessons life taught him is, you're funny. Not that he <laughs> really is, necessarily, but because people, because he was in a position of power and people felt obliged to laugh at his bad jokes or his yeah. inappropriate Humor. Well, that's what I like about the humour. I think the humour works well, the way that you deliver it and that they've furnished Gregory with, because like you say, it's a little bit antagonistic, isn't it? I think it works well in that context of the whole character that he is. Yeah, it's just like he's a guy who, who's sort of, yeah, I, I love that that he's so self-involved that he doesn't remember people's names. <laughs> I, like, I love that thing right up the past when he goes, Natalie, right? And she goes, no, <laughs> Maggie, I go... Pretty close, so in that room. Okay, right. Anyway, where were we, Gregory? Oh, that's right. You were telling me that you don't like to kill people, and I was saying that I do, under the right circumstances. Well, this this situation that we we find ourselves in, this this conflict. 
I can stop it before it even gets started. I mean, here it is. I go to my people and I, I tell them, if, if you're joining with this, this misled crusade, you're no longer citizens of the hilltop. You're out on your asses. You still their guy? still listen to you, Gregory. Can you exile people? Hilltop is my house. I'm still a guy. I've always been the guy. Huh. If you're still a guy, if indeed you have always been the guy, then why the hell didn't you know about the widow leading an army of your people straight up my ass in Alexandria? The response from the Walking Dead family of fans to Gregory's death has, of course, been desperately sad to see yourself leave the cast, but with great relief and, you know, even satisfaction that the insidious Gregory is no more. Now, whilst I've been hearing this chorus of, I'm so glad, Gregory is finally dead. I can't help but surmise myself upon a character journey with more dimension, perhaps exploring how close Gregory might have come to meaning with actual sincerity those words that, that he delivered at the funeral speech. What are your thoughts on this yeah. and how the character of Gregory was explored? Yeah, and I think that I think people are always more complex than they are generally allowed to be portrayed on television shows. And, and and in movies. Um, and it is expedient to make them simpler so that people can follow it and not get lost in the muddle. So I get why they are simplified and sometimes uh, unnecessarily so to keep things moving along and to make it clear for the audience. I tend to be of the, the personal taste to not like to be told what to think about how I'm supposed to react to a story or to a, a character so that I can I can be conflicted, so that I can make up my own mind as an audience member. I like that kind of complexity. But that was never going to be the case with this character in this show. And I can remember the second, before I signed on for the second season, I was really hoping and I was excited about it, but I was also excited about the possibility that there might be a redemption. Yes. I felt that I had fulfilled just about every color of the unctuous rainbow <laughs> in season seven. And so before season eight, having our chats with Scott, and I said, so uh, any uh, any glimpse of a redemption on the horizon? I said, because I do think, I, I, like I just said, I think I played about every color in the unctuous rainbow last season. He said, "Well, I think the thing that's important to realize with the with the unct with regard to the unctuousness of, of Gregory is that it really is more of a feature than a bug." And I'd never heard that expression before. Um, and I went, "Oh, okay. So no redemption. It's mm. just that's who he is. He's just irredeemably douchey." Yes. It's quite restrictive, isn't it? Almost putting a peg on a particular character. And I would have liked certainly to have seen given some glimpses to how Gregory found himself in that position, because if he'd been that anxious from the start, how did he become leader of the Hilltop in the first place? I think it did the, the story and the character a great disservice to to back it into that, that kind of one-dimensional corner. And then ultimately, the whole point of leaving me in the pen and bringing me down and breaking me down to nothing was so, as I was told, to bring him back up to a position of power to set up, as you would want to, yes. uh, set up a powerful character, a once powerful character, once again before the ultimate demise. It was like an also ran in the first episode. So I, I, I hope and I'm glad if it did get the, the season nine off to some start and relieved people that were tired of the character. But I think they were tired of the character if they were because they didn't do anything with it last season. Well, you mentioned the pen because I, as, as a fan of the character of Gregory from the comics and from the show with your portrayal, it almost felt like they were sticking the character in a pen because they just didn't quite know what to do with it. The question, I think, speaks to brave writing and whether the show with brave writing could have explored uh, an extra dimension to Gregory's character. Ken was a quiet, good-hearted young man. He wasn't a fighter. No, he, t he tended to our animals. He, he shooed the horses. These regular guys like Ken that keep a place going. 
<laughs> he will be remembered as a son, a friend, a shining example of hilltop strength, fundamental decency, even in the face of this terrible tragedy. Cheers, Ken. Rest in peace. You know how the show works. They don't know until the last minute. They got a lot of balls they're keeping in the air, and, and yeah. uh, understandably so. And, and why should they pin themselves down before they they uh, they have to? They want to keep all their options open, and it's a delicate balancing act. You know, I sort of, I, I totally get that. Um, I hear it all the time when we do interview the voice actors for particularly beloved video game characters that may have gone on for 10, 15 years. They'll always say, well, we're the last to hear the next installment came out and we were the last to hear that it had gone to another actor. It really was a thing that pushed me out and made me want to start my own production company because I know so many actors. I've got, I've built so many great relationships with so many writers, actors, producers, mm -hmm. cinematographers that I don't need Hollywood anymore. I know that there, there's a, a tremendous thirst for content and I would rather treat people fairly and have them be given a, a proper share of the percentage of profits down the line when something takes off because I know it's the talent of the people involved in the hard work. When The Walking Dead first aired, I, as someone that maybe takes television far too seriously, I was really pleased that it was, I felt that AMC were holding it up as quite a high drama. It was going to try and deal with the, the, this zombie genre in an intelligent way. Over the years, it seems to be cutting costs and holding back in terms of writers and directors. The combination of Kirkman and Frank Darabont, even though they didn't end up staying together, they had such powerful, unique, personal visions that they ended up yes. being in conflict. They still are incredibly visionary individuals. And it was that admixture, and I believe to this day that it was their personal even bad chemistry, but the combination <laughs> of their ideas that made those initial, the pilot and the initial seasons so searingly, it just etched in everybody's mind that they still needed and wanted more and more and more because it was so powerful. What you're doing isn't right. Somebody stop this, please. Killing me in the dead of night you're You're wrong. I'm not ashamed. Stop this! Please! Not for the love of God! Stop it! Talking of those scenes, they were considerably shocking. And I have to say, Xander, the emotion in your voice, delivered with palpable terror, it really was a stunning performance. Thank you. Your performance really cut through. It, it, it was very powerful, very, very shocking. Why do you think Gregory, as a character, could not find it in himself when he's articulating a better way to be at the funeral, to actually mean those words he delivered as a beautiful eulogy? I, I bought that entirely. Ah. To be honest, I didn't buy him pulling a knife on Maggie. I thought that was something he would never have done. Mm. Because, uh, he, he was a physical coward, and he was someone who was um, had witnessed over and over and over again Maggie being the opposite, Maggie having been someone who could uh, dispatch a, a, a walker in seconds when he himself had to beg her to come to his rescue when he had been unable to face a walker. So I thought that was a lie. And I, I had to do what I had to do because they, they wrote it. But I thought that was a cheap plot twist to throw at a character that had been established in a very specific way. And it was just a way to justify moving the gears of the story forward to where she had to hang him by the end of the episode. And I, I, I didn't buy it. I bought, I bought the soliloquy. And I think that Gregory did I don't think Jesus would. I think if he wasn't sincere, Jesus wouldn't would have been perceptive enough to pick up on the insincerity. I played it sincerely because I believed he meant it and felt it because he did feel for the people of his community. Nobody's that shallow and nobody's that one dimensional. 
You can't even murder someone, right? This place? I built this place. None of this would exist if it wasn't for me. You're just Rick's lucky. Rick ended the war. That's more than you ever did. And he's your friend and your mentor. You know what's funny? Is you can't go back to Alexandria because you know who is still there. Do you even give a crap about all of the stupid shit that you have done? After all the chances that you've been given? No. Because I'm still here. I'll know that you did this. I'll attack you because you got a son killed. You blamed me. You attacked me. And I defended myself. Really, I'm interested that you draw on that scene with Maggie with the knife that you see as being out of character because another thing that really jarred with me and I thought okay Gregory has a certain a certain negative aspects to his character but I never saw him as not just an out and out murderer but this scene now I'm interested Xander on, on your take there's a moment when Gregory approaches Maggie and already his plan to kill her is decided upon knowing that he's leading her to a brutal death he actually looks down at her baby and smiles so the character knows he's instigating the orphaning of this child he could have almost have kept himself focused avoided any direct visual acknowledgement of the baby whose mother he's about to have assassinated but he doesn't so as a viewer you're, you're directly told the child's presence does not deter Gregory's murderous plan he even smiles at it so I just wondered if that specific moment was discussed by Greg Nicotero you know, I'll, I'll be honest, they, this is where I both understand the shows, the pressure the show's under, the pressure a showrunner is under, To I'd heard the rumors that uh, both Lauren and Andrew were, that there was some uncertainty about their involvement in season nine, and how long Andrew would be with the show, and, and whether or not Lauren was coming back, and for how long, and and so maybe they had to accelerate storylines in order to get to bigger story arcs for beloved characters and main characters from the start of the series. I, I get that. I really do. And I don't, I don't take that personally. And none of it's personal. It's just, and it's all just different, different takes. And it's not my show. It's just a show I worked on. If he's going to set up somebody else offing her, which I could believe that if Gregory wanted her gone, he would be sort of numbing his mind. And then I believe that the look to the baby, which was my own choice as an actor, was almost like he doesn't want to think about what he's doing. And, okay. and he wants to cover his tracks. Ah. And he's he is a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. I, I, I'm a good guy. I, I smile at babies. That's hard when you got a kid. <laughs> he's in denial about what he's doing. Yes. That's yes. very different. Somebody who has a vendetta, and he thinks, and he believes when he sets that guy to go get her, that yes. he, along with many people at Hilltop, who he believes lives are now in jeopardy, a lot of people at Hilltop have died, they've been turned from an agrarian culture into a warring culture when they weren't that initially, and they weren't that by nature. You get that from the start, don't you? And Gregory almost feels that Rick's bringing Negan to him, that everything was fine until Rick actually turned up and started stirring the kettle. Right. And so Gregory has, has a very justifiable point of view there. And yes. a lot of people have died that hadn't died. Nobody had died under his watch. And Absolutely. You know, they, they had lost ground, but, you know, that he was a diplomat. He, was a, he could, from his point of view, have felt entirely justified in taking this leader out. I just don't think he had the nerve or the cold-blooded murderer in him to do it himself. <laughs> And I think he would justify letting somebody else do it. I think he would look the other way. He would be in denial. But that's a very different animal than the one that would pull a knife. Because he couldn't even do that with the zombie. They um, are looking to increase the pace. I think is why they, they went quite abruptly from Gregory having a knife held to his neck to suddenly the next time you see him, he's in a noose. Many people have spoke, spoken about Maggie as being a leader, someone to be followed, a mother. And I'm thinking, yeah, but she's also judge, jury and executioner. 
Oscar wanted to provide, I think, the stark contrast to Rick's approach with Negan. It is a graphic novel, and so I get those kind of graphic distinctions. And, you know, it's, it, these are all just choices. I was talked into doing the show because I was told it's a family. It was. I loved Greg Nicotero. I loved Andrew Lincoln. I, they, uh, I've said over and over and over again, Andy, Andy is a, just a stellar human being. He's the best number one on the call sheet which is the term we use in the business for the first for the lead actor of a series who sets the tone from the top and it works its way down. And I never saw it to be more the case than, than with him because he had a, a kind of passion and physical commitment to the show, a spiritual commitment, and was so emotionally level and kind to everyone and, and included everyone and had everybody pulling on the same end of the rope. And I, I give credit to him beyond any reckoning with why the show is as successful as it has been just for one man's ability to do so much to create a feeling of family. I really enjoyed working with Scott Gimple and, and all the conversations I had with them. I, I love and everybody in the cast was so cool and so cool. So, so yes. love everybody in the crew. It's funny because actors, we, we grew up in the theater where we work for free, and, and I think everybody kind of knows that about us, that we love a great role, that we love a great cast, and that we love we do love the family atmosphere. And that, that is, to me, I had reached a point where I'd been around prima donnas and difficult people that, that had spoiled the process. And, and I was talked into doing this because I was convinced, and I was right, that they were right. It was a different vibe, and I enjoyed the vibe so much. Maggie thinks she's above the law. You know that election? It's a joke. Who do you think counted those ballots? Her buddy Jesus, that's who. You know, I've talked to a lot of people that are not happy with the way things are going. They're just afraid to speak up. Maggie will do whatever her pal Rick says, even if it's not good for the I don't see that we can do a hell of a lot about it, Gregory. She's the one that decides those things. Yeah. And it's the decision she's made and the priorities she set that put your boy into the ground. Yeah. I'm speaking plainly because I'm angry. I'm angry to see the lives at the hilltop, your son's life being treated like the price of doing someone else's business. She's the leader. She doesn't have to be. You mentioned what they could have done with the character, and if they had pursued those those extra levels, that level of dimension, then Gregory's final scenes would have been that, would have resonated more, would have been that more emotional, and it would have really have worked, because you're quite right. Maggie's clearly sending a signal to Rick. Look, this is what you should have done with Negan. But then that really would have had a much more of an emotional impact. Yeah, that would have made them uh, feel differently about Maggie. So everything has, it, it's all, you know, that's the other part why when it comes to writers, it, it's a delicate balance. I don't know what it must be like. I can imagine writing a story, you know, to, to make a film. I've never felt like I could imagine what it would be like to balance all these characters and keep yes, them going yes. through season after season. And I with all humility, really respect their ability to, to do it. And I don't hold any grudges about it. I honestly don't after, at the at the end of the day, when all is said and done, I don't, because I, I don't know how they do it. Well, that takes a lot of humility to say that, Xander, all things considered, taking into consideration your aspirations and what perhaps gave you those aspirations for Gregory's character in season nine. Uh, how many of them were there? There were a lot, maybe hundreds. Do another deal he made us take, Marsha? It's Maggie. No. We didn't make you take the deal, Gregory. I, I, I'm happy we could patch you up. You need to go. Make sure you let Rich know what we did for you. Dr. Carson said I should stay. If he thinks he has the authority to make that decision, he's mistaken. Don't look at me like that. She'll be safer with her own people. And we'll be safer without her. You need to keep your distance from Maggie and stay focused on your work here at Hilltop. Did you do this? We don't bury our dead, we burn them. I did it. I don't live here. Gregory, this is Sasha. She got Maggie here. They're both from Alexandria. I don't have time to keep track of everybody. 
I've been recuperating too, Jesus, from a stab wound. You know, Maggie said that her people could take care of the saviors. So far, all they've done is put our community at risk. If they see you here, they'll think we colluded. We did. I did not agree to this. If they think we helped attack their outpost, they'll do that to us. Jesus, do you have any idea what plausible deniability means? Yes. Well, then you know. It's our way out. Resi Fax from England. Uh, he asks, first of all, thank you for doing an excellent job, Xander, bringing the slimy and hateable Gregory to life on the screen. I'd like to ask about your final episode. How did you react when you read the script? And of course, the shockingly sudden death of your character. And what were your final days on set like? I guess I heard it first. And the fact that it was different than what I had hoped for was just disappointing to me, just like the beginning of season seven, before starting season eight, to hear that there was no room for a redemption had sort of disappointed me, just because it felt like an unnecessary constraint put on a character to not give it that element of humanity and dimensionality. And just knowing that that would be something that I could have brought so much to uh, and then with how that played out during the course of the season, as I suspected it would, it would give them nowhere to go. This next question references some of the productions that you have been on, both in film and television. And just to read that list, to then think that this is the actor that portrayed the character of Gregory. And then what did they do with this actor that has this huge, varied broad though broad range of, of, of various different characters in all different genres as well it's frustrating to think of the missed opportunity that could have been to have expanded a character which yes was the first leader that rick had come across that wasn't an out and out antagonist and they could have done so much with that character but particularly with the actor that they had the question in hand it comes in from i don't think i don't think this is the name his mother gave him at birth but from negan's bat over in North America, he says, Xander, you've been on set for many, many outstanding productions with some very famous names, both in highly acclaimed television drama and film, both independent, and many Hollywood blockbusters, including Terminator 2 with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Apollo 13 with Tom Hanks, Heat with Al Pacino and Robert De Niro, of course, and Air Force One with Harrison Ford to name but four from a, from a much longer longer distinguished list what was the experience like being on the set of such huge productions and how does that compare to the set of the walking dead i worked with al pacino and i worked with him on stage as well and robert duvall and I, I worked with a lot of my childhood heroes you know the higher up you go generally you know and tom hanks and i'd worked together i played his roommate on the movie where he met his wife rita uh volunteers a ton of other friends on Apollo 13. All it's an incredible cast on that. Yeah, you know, people at the high end tend to treat you really well because they don't have the same kinds of insecurities as people. You know, there used to be a real different world between film and, and television, and now television's gotten so good over the past ten years that uh, it's much, much less of a of a divide. But I, I used to be very aware of of you know, I'd work with somebody like Al Pacino or Robert Duvall or Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks, and, and they treat you with such respect. And they were so, like, I can remember both Duvall and Pacino came up to me right away and said, oh, I'm so glad you're doing this, because they knew my work and they knew that I was going to make them look good. <laughs> and that that's, that's what I do. And that I, I would become a character that would help tell the story and help set up. And, and you know, Andrew Lincoln from the beginning, it was so much of that ilk. You know, the very first scene we were talking about before. Yes. I'll give you a great example. And there's plenty of film actors that wouldn't have come close to this level of behavior because I've had to play the bad guy a lot. And I've had, to, <laughs> yes. I've had to sometimes be the alpha opposite, the alpha bad guy. I'm the alpha mm. good guy. I've been the antagonist to the protagonist. And a lot of movie stars as well as TV stars don't want somebody getting up in their grill because they think it makes them look weak. And, you know, in that first line that we yes. talked about, the line the boss coming in and then <laughs> say, uh, uh, well, you guys want to go upstairs, Jesus, show you where you can go get cleaned up and then you come back down and we'll, we'll meet down here later. <laughs> yes. And Rick says, uh, we're good. And I kind of look at him like, no, you're not good. You're, you're fucking filthy. <laughs> and then I say, 
Jesus will show you where you can go, and then we'll meet back down here later. Uh, <laughs> get right up in his grill and said, it's hard to keep this place clean. Yeah, yes. And, and I just took the risk on the first rehearsal just to oh, yeah. the waters because that, that was my gut instinct. I had to own the space. This was their show, but this was a brand new set. Yes. Coming into my space on this brand new set. And I, I then walked back into my room and shut the doors where I make my entrance from. And I thought, oh, Christ, he's going to go to the director and say, nobody gets that close to Rick. I'd cut his head off. Okay. And, and instead, the door flies open and he comes running in and picks me up off the ground and spins me around with a bear hug, lifting me off the ground, saying, I'm so glad you're doing this. <laughs> it reminded me of the classiest people I'd ever worked with ever in the Oh, industry. fantastic. Because he, he didn't worry about the threat to his masculinity yes, by yes, doing that. He knew that it would make the story and the tension raise up and that ultimately his character yes. was going to be, you know, and, and that just shows who he is. And also, yes. I don't know. Wonderful. And the scene is, is, is all the better for it because you know, it's, it's your first scene and it, and it really sort of resonated with me and stuck in my mind. That's wonderful. Jesus. You're back. With guests? Everyone, this is Gregory. He keeps the trains running on time around here. I'm the boss. Well, I'm Rick. We have a community. Why don't you all go get cleaned up? Hmm? Jesus will show you where you can get washed up. Then you come back down here when you're ready. It's hard to keep this place clean. Yeah. Sure. Now, on to another question from, this comes in from Bloody Eye from Missouri, and he asks, I enjoy much of your work, Sander, and it's great to see you willing to take the time to talk with the fans. You had previously worked on apocalyptic survival drama Jericho, which also starred Lenny James. What are your thoughts on Jericho as a production, and did you get the chance to work with Lenny on either Jericho or The Walking Dead? I believe I shot Lenny on Jericho, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> But one day I got to work with him, I, I, I bloody well shot him right in the, in the gut. Um, and <laughs> got to hang out, and we I, I just adore Lenny. He's, he's great. And, uh, yes. you know, I didn't get to interact with him. I didn't get to interact with Kari, who was a good friend. And I didn't get to interact with Melissa, who I just adored. And I was really looking forward to how Gregory and she would have, <laughs> how Gregory and Carol would have interacted. Yeah, absolutely. That would have been great. And certainly Lenny as well uh, would have been a very interesting interaction. But, you know, I, I got this. I got Father Gabriel and we had a ball, just that absurd interaction that we had. I'm interested how you felt this played in the whole context of not just the episode, but the show in general. The scene when Gregory really stands up in, in his eyes, certainly stands up to Simon and, the, and those scenes that you play with Stephen Ogg. Oh, well, Stephen Ogg and I, we became such good friends over the course of the show. And it was instantaneous because they wrote, I mean, Scott really nailed it with that. You know, he said straight off the bat, he goes, look, I know you've done all these amazing films and Stephen's done all this theater and all this stuff, but really the pop culture junkie in me just wants to see George Mason from 24 take <laughs> off with Trevor. Grand okay. And he didn't even know what kind of monster he was creating. With <laughs> those scenes but he, he they wrote the scenes so well and Stephen and i took to them so immediately and yes. he and i have a similar approach to being in the moment and doing each take a little differently and they pretty much realized that we were becoming this animal to <laughs> simon's the cat and mouse that simon's this enjoying toying with this power but yet is so powerless in his presence because he's so physically afraid of him and he doesn't want to get hurt. And yet he's still trying to keep his cool and trying to keep his sense yes. of uh, being the leader of this community intact. And the, and the disparity between the two were entertaining <laughs> for Simon. And, and simultaneously, Gregory seizes on the fact that he knows that Simon's bright and that Simon's educated. And he's very, you know, he has this extremely erudite vocabulary. And that I look around and I see all these, the Neanderthal sort of, henchmen that he has at his beck and call are not providing him with stimulating conversation. So that's one wow. thing I know that I can provide him and that that will be 
uh, a means for delaying my demise. But Xander, during it, I, I was so on edge. I, I really was expecting Simon just to, just to completely kill Gregory just immediately at any point. I just think, no, you, I mean, you really are pushing it now. And Gregory always was a guy who always pushed it. He pushed it with women. He pushed it with negotiating a deal. He pushed it with drinking too much. He pushed it with mm. every negotiate, just everything that he was a guy who pushed it and got away with it because at the end of the day, in the old world, there was, you couldn't physically get hit because you could put somebody under arrest. You could have your police protect you and it didn't come down to fisticuffs. And so he's still, he was so ill-equipped for this new wild west of the apocalyptic frontier. And when push came to a shove, he was going to go to his knees if he had to. And that's what he did. And like, well, you know, kneeling's not such a big deal. But don't take my scotch. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you take my painting? You don't want it. You're just doing that to be mean and cruel. <laughs> and But look, uh, I, I can be entertaining. I can make it. Uh, I have a conversation, lively banter. And I do think that they did it in the dialogue so well. And, you know, Scott was his comedy writer. And this is where I know that that's where I was delivering him something that he needed that the show, yes. you know, was, was humor. And that and, and so was Stephen. And, and that we did it within the constraints of our characters that we provided comedy. And, and mm. yet we still maintained and, and maximized the dramatic tension. And no, you did. Yes. We had to create a new camera move for our scenes called the Zandog. Um, <laughs> Because they, they had to do our, our singles at the same time because take one on me, my close-up, wouldn't match take two of his close-up oh. because we were always just completely different in each moment. Like he'd try one thing, I'd react to that thing that he did. And I'd do something and he'd react to that thing that I did, half of which wasn't in the dialogue, was just in the behavior. That made it so exciting and so fun, and I think it made it fun for everybody. I know the, uh, the camera people and, and everybody on set got a kick out of it too. You're absolutely right, because whilst I'm watching those particular scenes when he's looking up at the picture and with the scotch and also when Gregory's drunk and has Dutch courage to, to stand up to Simon, even during the comedy, there was a palpable sense of tension that I felt at any moment now. I felt that Gregory has pushed it too far and, and Simon's just going to take him out. Yeah, yeah. Well, after they had done such a beautiful job of establishing that rapport, Oh, yes. It felt like we'd created a beautifully baked a souffle that a lot of audience members that we'd gotten response from all over the world of people loving this thing. And then mm. just dropped it from the, the Iron Staircase in the first episode right off the bat in season eight. They had that there, didn't they, Xander, to yeah. develop? And it, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, well, they killed it the minute they had him shove me off the railing, and it's just... Mm. And interestingly, that directly leads to you being put, going back to Hilltop, being put in the pen, and then they just completely stall the character. Yeah. <laughs> Shouldn't talk to me like that. Who knows what might happen with all these saviors coming around? Did you just threaten me? Well, being sarcastic, okay. No. I think you just threatened me. I think what you want. You know, what I'm saying is I look out for my friends and I realized we're not friends. Come in. Ah, wonderful. Tequila. Crack that open for me, would you? You may go now. Show them out what you can. Xander, how did you first get into acting? Were you inspired by someone in particular? You know, it started at a very early age. I even turned it into a little bit of a rhyme. We didn't grow up with a lot of dough, but my mom knew how to sew, and she made me costumes, <laughs> which I was particularly drawn to over toys. Um, my father was an artist. They had sort of gotten off society's treadmill uh, when they met, and that uh, without elaborating on this why I grew up on a, on a sort of very unconventional environment with a lot of expat Brits living there and was surrounded by a lot of different accents. And so it was a combination of those two things, I think. My father's artistic predisposition. He'd also acted in community theater as I got older. And I remember the first time I saw a Samuel French playbook with the lines underlined in red, which he'd done very carefully with a ruler because he was an artist and an art director. Something about the precision of that and seeing all the lines underlined in red the minute I looked at it, it was like, bang, I'm going to do this. I had been, I think at the age of three already, sporting a Robin Hood and a 
Dr. Doolittle outfit. Now, those are both British characters, and my mother sewed beautiful renditions of both for me, um, adding the extra bits. I had a quiver and the whole fringe at the bottom of the, the green and the, the hat with the feather in it. And I just, I, I wasn't performing for others, but I was going off into the woods and it was a sense of transformation that occurred. It was like a magical yes. talisman. I, I was transformed into another person, to another time, to another place. I was going to ask, with, with just hearing now you talk meticulously about the particular parts of the costume and being enthused by your mother that's really homing in on that talent, that interest, that passion in you. Just such an early age, are you already delving into the character? You're really thinking, like you say, you're really transforming into another character. This was just to go outside and play yeah. in the woods. I was suddenly, I wanted to be Robin Hood. And my mother had the means by which she could give me a little costume and make me feel like I was Robin Hood, just like she later did with like a Superman cape with the S sewn on and the cape. And, <laughs> and suddenly I could leap from one boulder. Just like in, if you if you read where like the Wolfman and uh, all of these, these in different tribal cultures, in rituals, they were magic ceremonies. They were empowered by wearing the skins of an animal to yes. prepare for the hunt they actually took on the the and it's like a magical ceremony whereby they are infused by the power of the leopard or the the wolf or whatever the skin they were wearing and they could leap and in an inhuman way and that's where all those myths of the wolf man and stuff like that came uh -huh. from also with with that upbringing unconventional it sounded as well at an early age that you were surrounded by some quite interesting characters so maybe on people from all sort of different backgrounds like you say from all different parts of the world so i'm sure again i don't know if, if in later roles in life whether you kind of delved back and, and looked at that sort of tapestry of characters that were around you at such an informative age that's certainly true what you just said and i was exposed not to learning the languages necessarily but i was because everybody was speaking english but I was exposed to these different accents. And I can remember uh, we were on this big farm and, and uh, they were removing the roof from an old shed. And I just stood by, obviously too nearby, because he had to keep repeating this warning uh, over and over. Mind out your head below. <laughs> Mind out your head below. And each time he threw down a piece of the roof. And I just kept like, well, what does that mean? Mind out your head <laughs> <laughs> and my mother was from Texas, so I was always surrounded by, and all of my relatives were from Texas, so uh. I was surrounded by Texas and Southern accents. There were French and Russian and, gosh, there were Peruvian, Mexican. There were people from all over the world that were living on this farm. Yeah, I liked traveling. A lot of the, the, the jobs I took later were because of the desire to travel around the world, always studying people and so i think it, it it was a combination of playing characters inspired very early on assuming roles the transformation to go over space and time and transform but also a, an unending fascination with human beings all over the world and wanting to study them so acting really just fit like a, a hand yes. and a glove that's a fascinating answer and you mentioned travel and thinking how daunting it must have been is when you moved to Hollywood, you were spotted by an acting agent when you were in a the theatre and you've moved from your native New York right across the country. That was uh, not easy. All my family was very close to and friends and everybody I'd, I'd grown up with being on the East Coast. To leave all of that for a completely foreign environment in just about every way imaginable is yes. funny. We were just watching last night with the kids. We watched Annie Hall last night. Oh, yes. That uh, was a few years prior to my having made the move. It uh, so describes in stark relief everything that we all, all those of us who were living in New York, felt about New York. Yeah, maybe dirty at, at the time, especially in the in the late 70s. But it, it's so full of cultures. Los Angeles sort of represented this empty vessel without culture just this fixation on money and and tv and and i was really drawn to the minutia of film acting and i loved film and my father he was a he was particularly fascinated in the the ability of any given particular actor to transform 
from one completely different character to the next, from one film to the next. And I know that lodged in my mind as like the yes. ultimate act of magic to uh, become uh, a conveyor of story and character over and over without people knowing that that was you. Certainly hearing in your voice that tapestry of characters that you're looking to seek out matches well with, you know, your early appearances. You were in such globally iconic television as MASH, Cadney and Lacey, Remington Steel, Miami Vice, Moonlighting, The A-Team. I, I, each one of those is just a podcast in itself. That illustrious list alone. Let's not forget The Incredible Hulk and Heart to Heart. Ah, oh, Heart to Heart, yes. Your fans would know The Incredible Hulk. It was the first time I played a bad guy. No, I don't know. I think Tales of the Gold Monkey is the one that nobody hears of anymore. Oh, do you know, I loved that show and I could never think of the name of it. And I remember that was one of the first things when the internet came about and you could Google things. And I was literally typing in guy with with like an, a plane that like a seaplane and leather jacket just these random images that i can remember from it <laughs> I, I loved that show and i played a british soldier i played the bad guy on that on one of their early episodes and that was back when there were very few british actors in, in the states of course you famously played ctu agent george mason on the much critically acclaimed espionage thriller 24 alongside of course Kiefer sutherland now bloody eye again and what was the experience like working alongside your wife in 24 and then in the spy series nikita and again in the online series the booth at the end for which you won a streamy award for best male dramatic performance it was fantastic working with her. We've, we've done a whole bunch of other things together since as well. A lot of obscure projects with friends, and we will continue to. And we have embarked on uh, creating a production company here in Maine, get off the treadmill and think outside the box and uh, off the grid a little bit here. Hmm. Incredible production values brought by the uh, environment itself and uh, people that are drawn to this area tend to be really creative. Joel Cernow, who was a showrunner on 24, and was very open to input from us uh, to always to make the script better. You know, he, his his one edict was uh, never bore. So any choices that we made, he was open to. He just didn't want to make a soft choice. And sometimes he, he made the character, George Mason, I would sometimes, does he need to be gratuitously bitchy or, or mean? Or I just want to make sure we can justify it. And he said, as long as it's not boring. And mm. But uh, a lot of times we got into working the vernacular because sometimes it would just seem a little too on point. The keeper was really good at breaking down the scenes and we would we would often do a thing where we'd all have some alts written down, ideas about different ways of saying different things or approaching the scene. Then we would come, we would rehearse, we would tear it apart, we'd put it back together in rehearsal and then we would shoot it. And uh, there was, because of the chronological sequence in which we always shot episode to episode, there was really a sense of the characters growing, developing in front of our eyes. Mm. And um, and it was great to work with the uh, writers that let, let us rewrite. You know, they, they won the Emmy for it, uh, mm. they, for writing, because I think because of that, not because of our great <laughs> additional writing, but because they were open to taking advantage of everybody pulling on the same end of the rope and bringing maximum creativity to the to the moment. It was a great show to work on. So many of the shows that you've worked on, so globally iconic. We've got a question here, Resi Evil Chick 96 from North America. She asks, Xander, I've enjoyed your work in Terminator 2, Candyman, of course, Taken, CSI, and The Walking Dead. Many of your roles have been unsympathetic characters, often morally flawed. But of all the roles you have played so far, which do you prefer playing, the good guy or the villain and why? I think that just is a pattern that got established early on because I was up for a bunch of lead roles when I first came to Hollywood and they looked mm. up and they saw I had a receding hairline and they saw my eyes looked a little too wise or something to, or knew something, I knew too much to play the innocent thing. <laughs> and I came so close on these big, big opportunities. I just wanted to get working and get used to working with cameras. And so I, I knew they had a different bad guy on every episode every week. And so I would uh, change the way I looked, the way I, I behaved, and I would just walk into the room as that character. And so people sort of got the feeling that I was a scary guy. Uh, mm. So I heard in Hollywood that they had to see it walk in the room. 
And so I walked in the room as uh, slightly deranged or slightly disturbed or whatever it was that uh, they were looking for. And I convinced them. And I think the, the buzz got out on me as being a, a slightly offbeat left of center. And then once you do it convincingly and if you sacrifice yes. your vanity, if you're willing to sacrifice your vanity, the business will absorb you at whatever level you allow it to. And then even good friends of yours will go have a great role for you. But they go, but we need to like this guy. And you go, but you like me. And they go, yeah, you just have played so many of those characters. I just the minute you, they, people see you, they're going to think, oh. And I think that's wrong. And I've, I've proved it in a, a, a lot of roles I've done recently. That if you're supposed yes. to be a character, the minute you come on, they'll like you. You know, with the maestro that's coming out and a number of other things I've done, I've, I've proven that not to be the case because it all depends. Only when you're supposed to not like me have you ended up not liking me. Yeah, absolutely. And during an acting career that has seen you take on an outstanding range of varied roles and genres, Xander, which was the one favourite role for you to take on and your most favourite production? Well, I have an, uh, an emotional affection for Sid and Nancy. It, yes. You know, Gary Oldman's first film, it was Roger Deakins, who just won for Blade Runner this past year, and, and Gary won for Churchill, you know, that thing he did. They yes. both finally won their first Academy Awards just this past year, even though it was 35 years ago or whatever that we did Sid and Nancy in 1985. Not 35, you do the math. But over 30 <laughs> years ago, and it remains, Alex Cox was at the top of his form, and, and just everybody together, it was a group of people, you know, the people that did the music for it, the people that uh just it was a crowd and um we all stayed friends forever and uh mm. some of them aren't around anymore but uh, those who are, are are all still pretty damn tight and i started to get i got offered to, uh miami vice without having to audition for it right after that came out Safe was offered to me in a weird kind of way because of Sid and Nancy, and then Gattaca was offered to me because of Safe, and so I. Oh, wonderful film! Yes, anointed by the art film community around internationally because of yes. Sid and Nancy. Mike Figgis put me in four movies because he fell for the character, and it was that kind of thing. And and I all I think I'll always feel indebted to it for that. Well, Xander, we'll come to our last question because we have got many, many more from the fans, but you have devoted your personal time with us. So thank you so much. Last question from the Oracle Dragon. And, and Xander, she would like to know for your fans, do you have any particular production or role coming up that you'd like to share? Well, I've won a couple of Best Actor awards on the festival circuit internationally for the film The Maestro, about a, yes. a guy who was exiled from Mussolini's Italy and made it to Hollywood as a composer. And he was a ghost composer at first. They, they weren't willing to give him credit or pay him much money, but he was just happy to do what he loved doing and have his family there safe and sound in California. And then he ended up becoming a teacher, and he taught the likes of Henry Mancini and John Williams and Jerry Goldberg and Andre Previn, and I think Randy Newman was with him for a little while, and Iamara Cohn, I think, was with him for a little while. The list just went on of the amazing composers that were with him because he had this un incredible capacity to help people find their voice and bring it out and yes. his passion his willingness to embrace the crazy beautiful poetic journey of being an artist and and how he helped to inspire people to uh, find that love of their art and stay with it and if they didn't have what it took to embrace what it was that was their journey and was their path and move on and uh, with some grace and uh it's just a beautiful, beautiful story and beautiful movie, and, and I hope people get to see it. It's, it's won a lot of awards now, both as a film and for my performance, and, and gosh, I sure hope it uh, gets out there in the commercial world because it's a little movie, but a beautiful one. There'll be links to that movie, Xander, in all the places at social media that this interview goes out. Maestro, I believe there's a website, there's a Facebook and Twitter page for that film, so we'll put links to that in our interview description. All that leaves for me to say, Xander, you played Gregory masterfully. It was so kind of an actor with your huge range of CV to devote so much of your free time to speaking with me and with the fans. We will miss you so greatly on The Walking Dead and thank you so much for today. You bet. I know the fans all really like you and they were very excited that I was going to talk to you. Thank you, you so much. Thank you, Paul. It's been great talking to you. All the best. We'll talk again soon. 
You have been listening to a Crimson Head Elder exclusive. And for more interview podcasts with the icons of survival horror, including Resident Evil 3 director Kazuhiro Aoyama, The Walking Dead's Carrie Payton, and Claire Redfield actress Alison Court, please visit our YouTube channel, Survival Horror Podcasts, and our community website, Crimson Head Elder, www.crimson-head.com. And for all your survival horror news, follow us on Twitter, at Crimson underscore Head, where you will also find our full cast of special guests this Halloween season, including The Walking Dead, Xander Barkley, Richard War, the actor for Albert Wesker, and the director of Resident Evil Operation Raccoon City, Andrew Santos. From the entire Crimson Head Elder team, happy Halloween, and we hope to see you in our survival horror mansion real soon.